0: Hi guys, this is Ben Orman, and you're listening to Sound Advice from Ballards LLP. Hi folks, hope you're all well. My name Ben Orman, and I'm a here at Ballards LLP Accountants. Today we are joined by Alison Scott of HCR Solicitors, and she's going to talk about all things related to shareholders agreements, which I know probably a little bit about, but not very much at all. So hopefully. Alison's got some good stories about them and what to watch out for when you're considering them. Alison, welcome. Thank you. You're joining us. Firstly, could you give us a bit of your background? What is it you do for HCR, how you've arrived there in your career and what qualifies you to talk about shareholders agreements?
1: Yeah, certainly. So I arrived at HCR when it was a one firm or one office firm in Worcester 17 years ago. I've been with the firm continuously throughout that period. I'm now head up the the Midlands corporate team. Uh, so that covers both the Worcester and Birmingham offices. And I've been doing corporate law now for 22 years, all in all. So 17 Great. of them at HCR.
0: So you've seen a lot of change at HCR as well. But it's a very, very different place.
1: It is indeed. Yeah.
0: I know we do here. Yeah. We we suddenly find a, occasionally a folder of old photographs back from the in the day. I'm <laughs> sure you probably have them there as well.
1: I think they're well hidden. Hopefully, they are anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, when it comes to shareholders agreements, it's something I, I talk to a lot of my clients about. Generally, owner managed businesses, and I, I know that I need to encourage them to have them for various reasons. But firstly, could you sort of explain what they are? Know, why you might need them. Surely how shareholders behave to one another is is enshrined in law or, yeah, or I got that wrong?
1: Yeah, it's not really enshrined in law. I think that's part of the problem. So there are some things that are enshrined in law, but unfortunately that doesn't always work for individual companies and shareholders. Obviously every company is different and the dynamics between the shareholders are different. So a shareholder agreement Uh, how we often refer to it now is as a, it's a will for the company. A lot of people are familiar with the idea of having a will for when they die in their personal capacity. And so a shareholder agreement is something to think about in those terms, really. What do you want to happen to this company in the event of not just death, but certain events happening, which may be within or outside your control?
0: I like that that description of it a will for the company. Is it a case where a, a shareholder agreement can conflict with a, a personal will? Is that yeah? That they, can they, often?
1: It can happen, but what you need to make sure that you're doing is if you're planning, if you're doing some estate planning, so you're you've got your shareholder agreement and you want that in place. That you then speak to whoever's drafted your will and you make sure that that correlates. One of the things that we often find is that, particularly with individuals, they change their mind. So they might write a will 20 years before their death, but at any point up to their death, they can change that that will, and they often do. But if you have the shareholder agreement, which is a contractual agreement between yourself and another shareholder, you can't change that just independently of the other shareholder. So if you have agreed, for example, that on a death... One shares, holder's shares will transfer to another, regardless of what it says in their will. If in the will it says, actually, I've changed my mind, I'd like to leave my shares to my wife, the shareholder agreement would take precedence. Well, so it's, it's, a, okay. it's a useful document. They They need to run alongside each other, but it's a useful document to have there because people do often change their wills or think about changing their wills. It just gives a bit of protection to everybody involved that you don't that you've got that security, I suppose, from the outset.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I suppose but protecting the company for shareholders who are left is paramount to make sure you know, companies need to continue and to thrive and to succeed. So you want that agreement there, especially if to run concurrently with that will.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of issues that come out of that, really. One, that often the the, the estate of the person that has died... Don't particularly want to be a shareholder in a company that they don't necessarily know anything about. And actually, if you've got your shareholder in place, it could save you months, years of sorting out where the shares go, and you know, dealing with executors or children, beneficiaries, whatever it may be. The shareholder agreement will just help to to ease that process. It gives you a starting point from which you can work.
0: Yeah, the clarity is key isn't it because it sounds like it'd be a horrendous mess sometimes yeah Um, i think i've sort of launched into because i I like the idea of the company will i mean now you sort of suggested what a, a shareholder agreement might be but if businesses don't have them what are the sort of other problems that can arise if there's if there's someone in place
1: there's a variety really and i suppose it depends an awful lot on whether we're talking about a company that perhaps has got two shareholders equal or if you've got unequal shareholdings, minority shareholders, or you know, one person's got a vast majority as against some, some minority shareholders, but the shareholder agreement can set out between the shareholders, so it's a contract between them, what happens in certain events and also what controls each of the shareholders might have in respect of decisions that are made by the company. And, uh, or, or not made by the company, depending on whether you're acting for a minority shareholder or a majority shareholder. It can be a veto that you can give to a minority shareholder to allow them to block something, or it could be something that a majority shareholder can carry and do on their own or them and another or whatever it may be. So it can it can really regulate just the the day-to-day running of the company. and. I mean it can be as wide and as deep as it needs to be but things that often are that people want covered is just to make sure that shares can't be transferred willy-nilly around to anybody that you know that the shareholders are, are in it together and another thing that we see quite often on shareholder agreements is the ability to Attach different rights to different shares. So we often have alphabet shares, which are very good for the tax planning purposes so that you can declare different dividends to different people, depending whether they're working in the business or not working on the
0: business. You mentioned certain events, like, for example, we touched on debt and shares being transferred. Are there any other sort of ones that you, you always seek to cover off in a shareholder agreement?
1: Yeah, commonly it would be insolvency would be another one. If anybody were to be struck off as a director or unable to act as a director anymore, yeah. death often also includes long-term sick. You don't actually have to be no longer here to be uninvolved in the business and need to move the business on in another way. Divorce is another one that we quite often come across. So that you know, sometimes on on the smaller owner managed businesses somebody might give a share to their spouse again for tax planning purposes in the event of divorce you want to make sure that that share comes back to the original shareholder and actually any financial element of the divorce is dealt with under the the divorce and the courts yeah in that way but the actual share ownership comes back to where it first came from effectively
0: and I think um, seeing a lot of um a lot of companies, as I do in my day job, a number of things that you have touched on have come up. A divorce is a, a big one, of course, is very a common one, yeah. Alphabet shares as well. It just helps, I find, when speaking to clients, to be absolutely clear on what happens in that eventuality. And I, I think, could you give me an example, probably, you know, one of these events that you've spoken about, what would happen if there wasn't a shareholders' agreement? How, how does
1: well, would uh, that pan out? The easiest one is probably a divorce and we see this quite a lot. So you might have spouses holding shares, one's got the majority and one's just got a minority interest. There's no, without the shareholder agreement, there's no way to force one spouse to give their shares back. It would go down on the, the form of the relative spouses as to what their assets are. And then it's just left for the court to decide what happens to those shares. And depending on how the financial aspects of the divorce work out it may be that the judge says you just have to give the shares back and in return you get the house the car the whatever but we've seen it quite often where actually the judges don't necessarily understand corporate law mm-hmm. itself and they just say you know well they're allowed to keep their shares for another 10 years until you've paid them x amount of dividends and got them their financial yeah. settlement that way which is really a, an unwanted outcome for probably both parties in reality. But if you could take away the fact that the share even rests in the spouse's name, all you're then discussing is the financial element, not that including that as an asset.
0: And I can imagine the situations whereby there is, there are shares that remain in the divorced spouse's ownership, a minority shareholder or a shareholder with, you know, even over 25% of the shares can cause a lot of trouble yeah, the but, operations uh, of a business.
1: And if you don't have a shareholder's agreement beforehand, it's very unlikely that you're then going to be able to agree a shareholder's agreement with your ex-spouse after the event where you want yes. to include things like, you can't sell the shares, you can't transfer or I can drag you along on a sale or whatever it may be. That is is even harder to put in place once that divorce process is, is underway.
0: I mean, it sounds just as important for families, shareholders to have these agreements in as, as unrelated parties as well.
1: Yeah, one of, the, uh, one of the most common things we have is when we see clients initially and say, have you thought about a shareholder's agreement? And of course they haven't because they're all family and they don't need one or we're newly married, we don't need one. But actually, unfortunately, the reality is anybody can fall out with anybody at any time. And it's really only once a company starts to make a bit of money and it's got a bit of oomph behind it that people then start to fall out you know and say well they they've never done their fair share i'm the one that's carrying all the load here they're taking half the dividends that's just not fair and things just sort of crumble from there
0: exactly yeah i think one of the things which i've heard about i don't quite understand is called the deadlock provision yeah um what what is that? When when is it required? You know what's its role? How does how does it sort things out?
1: So deadlock is often used where you've got equal shareholders, or for example, two shareholders. They're both directors. They're both they're fifty fifty shareholders. Under company law, you can't make any decision if you don't agree on anything. You can't move the company forward. So the deadlock provisions are a mechanism to allow you to. To, to force a resolution to the to whatever the issue may be. And that can ra- range from one party being able to offer to buy the other one out or putting the company up for sale or in the worst case scenario, maybe selling all of the assets and just liquidating the company. So it's a mechanism just to, you know, where you get 50-50 shareholders, one wants to do X and one wants to do Y and they just can't can't, agree a way forward yeah it's sort of the deadlock is there almost to sometimes they're quite draconian the deadlock resolution mechanisms but they're there to try and force you really to make a decision to save having to go down that ultimate liquidation type of
0: route okay and you see those in in all shareholder agreements are just the 50 50 ones or how, how does it work
1: Quite a lot because it really depends. sometimes you've got family members and you you know you get people take sides, so they're often quite useful to have in in a lot of shareholders agreements really. you know it can sometimes we find with shareholders agreements where you've got three shareholders all equal, so nobody's got a majority again, but you never know you can include some provisions in a shareholders agreement because where there's three of you, you never know whether you're going to be two in agreement. and the one who's not. So you can make it all quite fair in terms of, you know, that certain things happen, you'll always have a majority, there'll always be two against one. But actually, if the one is the one who is always being outvoted, you might need a a deadlock mechanism for that person to be able to get out because they're just continually being voted against.
0: So I get that. One of the things I've heard, which sounds... Probably a bit cooler than it is. It's just this Russian roulette provision. Is that linked to, to deadlock? How does that work?
1: Yes, that's one of the deadlock resolution provisions. So, Russian roulette is where you provide that if there's a deadlock and you can't move forward, one shareholder or either shareholder can serve a notice on the other, effectively saying, I would like to buy your shares, or alternatively, I'm happy to sell you my shares. And the idea with that is that the first person to serve the notice then loses the control of the process because it's the receiver of the notice that then decides whether they want to buy the other person's shares or to sell and it also that the idea of Russian roulette is that if you said I'm happy to buy your shares for a million quid Mm. the company's only worth a hundred thousand you have to be prepared to also if the other person says, "Okay, buy my shares, you have to be able to then buy them for a million quid. So it, okay. it's meant to uh, stop anybody trying to be too clever with a price and think I've got you know, I've got more money, I've got deeper pockets. I can yeah. set the price high and the other person will never be able to afford to buy my shares. The flip side of that might be is that they force you to buy their shares so you pay out a lot more money than the company is actually worth. Again, it's meant to be a mechanism to really make you as shareholders work together rather than to reach that point. But they can be quite useful.
0: Is it quite difficult to have those conversations when putting them in? Or are people generally that they on good terms anyway at that point?
1: Normally and, people are on good yeah. terms. I mean, it's sometimes quite difficult to focus on the what ifs when you're when you are on good terms. You don't know what it yeah. is that you might what you might be facing. I did have a, a shareholder agreement once where there were five shareholders and people holding different levels of shareholding. So you never quite knew who could vote who to get the right result. Yeah. So their deadlock provisions that they decided to write in was, in the event of a deadlock, they would have five rounds of rock, paper, scissors.
0: Oh, and no way. The... That... <laughs> yeah. It
1: was the best, the best of five. So three, whoever was the first of three on rock, paper, scissors. But that's, a, you know, it can be as... As simple as that's what worked for them. So it doesn't have to be something very fancy and legal. It yeah. can be whatever you want it to be.
0: I find that fascinating. Do you <laughs> did you actually have to explain the rules of rock, paper, scissors in the agreement? Or, or was, it, no, but was it assumed that everybody knew what that meant?
1: It was assumed that everybody knew how to play it. But it was quite difficult in terms of... But again, you know, you didn't know which two or three or four or five of the shareholders would be have fallen out and so you know which group you would be in so you have to sort of say you know out of the group however it may be you have your five rounds of rock paper scissors and first to three wins it was yeah it was it that was a slightly more unusual resolution deadlock resolution
0: (laughs) that appeals to my um as accountant brain and and of all the different permutations of who can who can vote together (laughs) that's uh.
1: that's one of the hardest things, really, in a a shareholders agreement to work out. And you can have percentages and numbers of shareholders who act together and things like that. But, you know, ultimately, I suppose it's very difficult to have a shareholder agreement that would come up with every single permutation of what might happen. But what the shareholder agreement is designed to do is to just give you a baseline of where you're starting from, even if the deadlock resolution is you go to the accountants and they'll value the business you don't really yeah. even need to say how they'll value the business you can just say you go to the accountants they will value the business on whatever whatever value they think is right and you take it from there
0: yeah yeah i, I completely get that i suppose you've just got to get to give that base level of clarity so that yeah. people people can continue to work together with a bit more confidence i guess
1: yeah. And one of the things we always say is that, although obviously it does cost you to put a shareholder agreement in place, the idea of it really is that you draft the agreement, you sign it, and you never look at it again. You put it in a drawer. You never need that agreement until something's gone wrong. So it's a bit of an insurance policy, I suppose, in that way. But you don't, the idea isn't that every week you're looking at it to check whether you've done something that you should or shouldn't. That the company should just run on a nice, even keel. It's only when somebody's feeling aggrieved or feeling like they've been minoritized or whatever it may be, or yeah. that they're not being listened to, that that agreement can come out. And then you have that, say, base level of where do we go from here?
0: Yeah. I feel myself with the number of different clients, I mentioned shareholders agreements, but I view it the same as also partnership agreements. The amount of, limited company shareholders and partners who effectively fall out or there's a big there's a a divorce etc i find that having this clarity written down when things do go awry is so important i I always do push these agreements with my client that sort of leads me on to kind of lever provisions you know what happens when somebody does wants to leave the company relinquish their shares or, or whatever I mean, can you give me some examples of these lever provisions and what you may have seen in practice, how they operate?
1: Yeah, uh, so the lever provisions are what we would call just triggers, really, to get the shares back into the hands of the remaining shareholder. So, again, it might be death, divorce, but sometimes just things like, you know, people's life changes and they decide that actually they don't want to be doing this job anymore. They've got a much better thing they need to do. Something we've seen quite a lot recently is, well, not quite a lot, but we've seen a bit of recently is people that just, particularly after COVID, have a bit of a life moment. I want to spend more time with my family. I just don't want to be doing this 16-hour day thing every day. So the lever provisions is effectively a trigger to get the share back. And it needs to be fair between the person who wants to go and the person who is then expected to just pick up the pieces of the person who wants to go again when there's some some value in the company actually it's quite unfair for one person to just say one day I'd like you to buy my 50% shareholding the other person's got to finance that and they you know that isn't always particularly easy so the lever provisions can write in things like you know how you get to the valuation and perhaps have a discount on the valuation. So you don't just get a straight 50% of the value of the company. You take a discount because you're you're not going to be working in it anymore. It can give you time to pay. And so you might say that you can pay X amount over a three-year period with a minimum of X per year. And as long as you get your X per year, it doesn't quite matter whether it's in equal 12-monthly installments each year. But so you can Work that into cash flow of the business depending on when the person wants to leave. And something that we find quite often in some of the newer companies is actually you have people tied in for a bit. so there is no leave there is no ability to leave for say a three year period or a five year period. You just have to be in it and you know obviously death excluded. but you know you sort of you're tying people together and just saying that there is no exit. So if you don't want to work in the business anymore, that's fine but you're not releasing any value in relation to the company until a period and then obviously whether the company has risen in value or might well have fallen is a risk for the person who's no longer wanting to be involved
0: yeah I, I mean i think two things that really resonated with me from what you said is really these are these clauses are designed for protect the success of the company for the for the, the shareholders going forward but also to be fair yeah. So you don't want to tie necessarily people in, but you don't want somebody to go, well, I, I just want to leave the company now, I've all my money out now, so thank you very much. Is that, is that yeah. what would happen if there, if there wasn't that shareholder agreement and somebody wanted to leave a leave a company? Say they were a third shareholder or something like that.
1: Yeah, well, there's, there's no mechanism at all, really. You would have to rely on preemption provisions, which may be in the articles. To just voluntarily offer your shares up for sale, but there's no obligation on anybody to buy them, so you just end up in a uncomfortable position where you've got a shareholder who doesn't want to be there and a shareholder or shareholders that can't afford to buy them. So, it just doesn't really work.
0: It's really awkward. It's yeah, really awkward. So,
1: yeah, and because the person who is leaving, obviously, they if they want to come off the board, they then lose their ability to have information rights. They don't know what's happening they lose some control over the remaining shareholders maybe saying well we're fine we'll just stop declaring dividends and we'll turn off their their monetary tap but let's pay ourselves more by way of salary yeah. the person who's leaving might actually find themselves in a you know quite a difficult position then they they lose all of that control and ability to to have that say at the board table or yeah. the shareholder table
0: yeah it's quite a mess really Oh, yeah, I am sold on the shareholder agreements. anyway. I, I must admit, I was anyway. I suppose quite a lot of the the challenges I have when I am recommending things like shareholder agreements, and it will be uh, an increasing, certainly an increased challenge to you. I guess is is actually just convincing people to have them. I mean, from what you say, it all makes sense to me. But as you say, mm. when you've got the potential clients in front of you, what would you say? I suppose if you had to sort of convince somebody within a minute or for example you know wh- why they need one
1: I think I go back to my first comment that you know I actually think about it as a will because I think people generally know that you need to leave a will you know it's only the unexpected deaths often where people haven't had the opportunity to write a will and I think if you think about your company shares in that way you wouldn't necessarily want to be leaving that sort of mess behind necessarily and leaving other people to just sort of fight through the the mechanics of getting shares back. And And it's a good way that, you know, if you do want your a spouse or children to benefit from the value of your shareholding, if you put the shareholders agreement in place, it can be a really good way to just help that happen rather than going through the years of, you know, probate and sorting things out so it can work for both the remaining shareholder and the estate to obviously talking about death but you know it can, it can really just ease that whole process but I think just a shareholder agreement generally you know it, it's just as I say it's a bit like an insurance policy you just draft it put it in a drawer hope you never have to use it but it's there if you ever need it
0: no, no, it doesn't necessarily help you, but it might, as you say, help your executors or family members as if something happens to you. Exactly. So, yeah. 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 That's great. Okay. No, that's wonderful. I mean, I've learned quite a bit already today. Unless there's anything else, Alison, you want to add to shareholder agreements, i I'll happily leave it there and uh, hopefully our listeners have enjoyed that and uh, learned something as well too.
1: Good. No, thank okay. you very much.
0: Thank you, Alison. Guys, that was Alison Scott of HCR giving us a lowdown on shareholder agreements. Please tune in next time for Ballard's Sound of (laughs) Christ.